Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that the word that you have sent out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but will accomplish your purpose. It will succeed according to your intention. And so we pray that your word would be planted deeply into the soil of our hearts tonight. May it spring up and bear good fruit in our lives, all to your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You open your Bibles tonight to John's third letter. You'll find it in your pew Bibles on page 1026, 3 John. So here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. And we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. After working our way through 1 John, last week we worked, looked at 2 John. Tonight we're tackling 3 John. And just under 200 words in the original Greek, this is the shortest book in the New Testament. It's also noteworthy that it's the only book in the New Testament it does not explicitly mention the name Jesus. It does, however, speak of the name in verse 7, which is a reference to Jesus, and so it is, without a doubt, a Christian letter. Specifically, this is a letter of introduction, requesting hospitality for the letter's bearer from its recipient, uh, the recipient, Gaius. While a letter of introduction may seem simple on the surface, there is a lot at stake in this letter, or else it would not be preserved for us in the New Testament. 
And this letter also has much to teach us, and it carries several lessons for us tonight. Last week, at the end of our sermon on 2 John, I introduced a plot twist in the history of these three connected letters that we'll look at in depth tonight. Uh, We don't have nearly all the details we might like to have. From what we read here in 3 John, it appears that neither 1 nor 2 John were actually received by the church that John sent them to, but rather John's messengers were sent away by a church leader named Diotrephes. We get John's response to this problem here in this third letter. He has now sent out a man, Demetrius, uh, likely with some other men along with him, and he is carrying this letter, third John, and he sent them to another leader in this church named Gaius. And he is asking Gaius to show Demetrius hospitality. If Gaius shows himself faithful and receives Demetrius, then this will prepare the way for John's own visit to the church in order to, Lord willing, rectify the situation and restore the church. So while John has a very definite purpose in writing, he writes not to command, but rather to persuade Gaius. Much in the same way we see Paul writes in his letter to Philemon. Now on one hand, the narrow purpose of this letter is about showing hospitality to Demetrius and his fellow workers. And on the other hand, from a broader perspective, the question of receiving Demetrius will force Gaius to decide, which side are you on? And that's the question that confronts us tonight as well. Are you on the side of the true and pure gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by his divinely commissioned apostles and recorded in the New Testament? Or are you on the side of men like Demetrius who are exalting themselves and opposing the teaching of Christ's apostles in the scriptures? Do you continue to believe the gospel and support those who preach and teach it and oppose those who oppose it? Whose side are you on? Since it's a brief letter, we'll work through it section by section. First, we have the greetings in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 gives us the author and the recipient, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. John again introduces himself very simply, simply as the elder, and he addresses the recipient of his letter as the beloved Gaius, or As we might translate it today, my dear friend Gaius. John will call Gaius his dear friend three more times in this letter. Of course, we'd like to know more about Gaius. The truth is we know nothing more about him beyond what the few details we can find here in this letter. There are three other men named Gaius mentioned in the New Testament, but this was a very common name at that time, and most scholars believe that they're actually four, they are four different men. So the letter is written to an individual, but since Gaius was a leader in the church, someone capable of offering hospitality and therefore a homeowner, a man of means, it was likely to understand that this letter was uh, not just to be read by Gaius, but to be read publicly to other believers who were following his spiritual leadership. This verse also introduces the main theme of this letter. As he says, whom I love in truth, the theme of truth, which is mentioned four times in these first four verses. 
While we might say that there's not quite as much emphasis put on love in this letter as in 2 John, John also uses the word love three times in these first four verses. Twice he refers to Gaius as his beloved, and once he speaks of loving Gaius in the truth. So again, John emphasizes both truth and love, but with slightly more emphasis on the truth. The greeting is followed by a brief prayer in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This prayer is in the place where we would usually find the blessing, sort of how we use the greeting at the beginning of every service, uh, just like we saw last time in 2 John 1.3. Instead, here we have this simple prayer. John is praying for both the physical and the spiritual well-being of his friend, just as we might do in the greeting of a, a letter to a friend today. I think it's worth noting briefly that in recent days, this verse, especially the King James translation of this verse, has been twisted and misused by preachers of the prosperity gospel. Let me read the King James translation of this verse. It reads, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. So Oral Roberts takes this not as John's prayer, but as God's promise of prosperity for all believers, saying that God desires prosperity in the here and now above all things for all believers. I think it goes without saying that this is a twisting of the meaning of God's word. John is praying for Gaius to have both material and spiritual well-being, but he is not promising material prosperity above all things for all believers. We can and should pray for one another. Like John, this is an example for us, but we must expect both good and hard providences from God. This prayer is followed by rejoicing in verses 3 and 4, and this should remind us it's the same pattern we saw in Second John. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Last week we noted that John wrote in 2 John 1.4 that he rejoiced greatly to find that some were walking in the truth. Here he emphasizes in particular that the one he is writing to, you, Gaius, you are walking in the truth. And for that, John rejoices greatly. Apparently, the messengers he sent with the previous letters who were not received by Diotrephes have returned to, to him with this good news that Gaius, at least, was receptive to them, and for that, he rejoices. Gaius, at least, was walking in the truth. And I do think that this verse contains at least a subtle rebuke to me, and perhaps you'll identify with this, with this as well. Do you rejoice? Have you ever rejoiced greatly? simply for the good news that others are persevering in the faith in the midst of this fallen and corrupt generation. It's easy to rejoice in the good news that a non-believer has come to repent of his sins and trust in the Lord. We also rejoice when our children come to profess their faith in Christ. Or we rejoice when another has wandered from the way and has repented and turned back 
and is restored. But do you rejoice simply when you hear the good news that someone has persevered in the faith in the midst of a trial? Can you sincerely say with John, as he writes in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Perhaps if you cannot say that now, and I don't know that I can, it's worth praying that the Lord would adjust the priorities of your heart so that you would have greater joy simply in seeing the perseverance of the saints. So with verse four, we come to the end of the introduction of the letter, and then John enters into the main body of the letter. So verses five through eight introduce John's primary reason for writing. He wants to request hospitality for Demetrius and those traveling with him, but he doesn't come right out with the request. Instead, he begins by commending Gaius for his previous hospitality, possibly hospitality shown to the previous messengers who were turned away by Diotrephes. So reading again verses five and six. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. John praises Gaius for being faithful in his efforts to support brothers who had visited, including some who were strangers to him. John had even heard public testimony before the church uh, from some who were praising Gaius's previous hospitality. And he now expects Gaius will do the same with the delegation now being sent by John, led by Demetrius. Now, what was the purpose of these traveling teachers? Verse 7, that they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They've gone out for the name as representatives of Jesus Christ to preach and teach in his name. Now, for right that Third John is written to the same church as First and Second John, then John also has the specific concerns of countering the false teachers there as well. But the general concern was sending a faithful teacher who would proclaim the pure gospel and would prepare the way for John to come as well. John also mentions that Christian preachers are supported not by Gentiles, but by believers. So he writes in verse 8, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Though Gaius may not be a teacher himself, he is a fellow worker as he provides hospitality. John is not necessarily referring to monetary support as we usually do today, but the practical support of providing food and shelter. Of course, what he mentioned in verse 6, sending them on their journey in a manner worthy of God might also mean giving them not only some food for the road, but also sufficient money for them to make the trip as well. But what is primarily in view here is hospitality, entertaining strangers for the sake of Christ. Of course, they're not complete strangers as they come with this letter of introduction from John. But Gaius will face a big decision when Demetrius and his fellow travelers show up on his doorstep They show up with this letter in their hand, 
And Gaius will face the decision, what will he do? And it's a tough decision. In John's second letter, he had warned the church, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of Jesus Christ, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 2 John 1, 10, and 11. So we are not to receive false teachers. But if someone does bring the pure gospel, believers are called to support him and to show him hospitality. And so you must be discerning in whom you show hospitality to. Notice here that this hospitality is different from what is often called hospitality in our culture today. It's not about putting on a show to entertain a few guests for a few hours. It's not about getting a few hot tips from Martha Stewart or perhaps more commonly today from Pinterest. The latest trends in entertaining. We need to distinguish these two things. I'm not saying that modern entertaining is anything sinful, but it's something different from what John is talking about here. Biblical hospitality is something that the church does with the mission of the church and the advance of the kingdom of God on the forefront of our minds. It's about meeting the needs of gospel workers so that they can focus on evangelism and discipleship, spreading the gospel far and wide for the glory of Jesus Christ. So when Demetrius and his fellow workers arrive, what will Gaius do? What will you do? when you have the opportunity to support the preaching of God's word. Of course, you do have that opportunity, and not just when we have a guest preacher in town, but you also have that opportunity each time we take up an offering. And it's not just mission offerings, but every offering that we take up in this church goes to support the ongoing work of the church, and the primary mission of the church of Jesus Christ is the preaching of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. That's why the church exists. That's why we meet together. And of course, there are many other things on our church budget, things like building expenses, office expenses, insurance, many other things, but all those things are there to support the primary work, which is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So John commends Gaius for his hospitality, the hope that he will continue to show hospitality. Then he contrasts Gaius's good example, the bad example of Diotrephes, verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to once want to, and puts them out of the church. Well, we don't know all these details about Diotrephes, all that had happened. Well, let's list off what we know based on these two verses. First, he was proud. He liked to put himself first. Second, he rejected the authority of the Apostle John, and that is a big strike against him because John was one of the 12 apostles hand-chosen by our Lord Jesus Christ who not only walked with him during his 
lifetime, but also was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Third, he was slandering John before others, talking wicked nonsense about him publicly. Fourth, he had not only turned away John's messengers, but he had also kept others in the church from showing hospitality to them as well. This may be an inference, but to me, this indicates a strong will, if not a controlling or domineering personality. In many ways, Diotrephes seems to be the exact opposite of what Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Diotrephes is an example of what a church leader is not to be, even as Jesus is our example of what a humble, loving, servant leadership looks like. Even as we recognize the ungodly leadership of Diotrephes, we should also recognize that John himself was exercising authority as an apostle writing this letter. He writes humbly to persuade, not to command. And yet he does write with authority. He plans to come soon to bring what Diotrephes is doing into the light and to settle matters. I think this is a beautiful example of John practicing what he preaches. As he says, we must abide in truth and in love. And though it's such a brief letter, John is speaking the truth in love in the way he confronts Diotrephes. Some have accused John of acting unlovingly towards Diotrephes, but I don't see it that way at all. If anything, I think it's Diotrephes who was unloving towards John. Diotrephes was a man of influence in the church, and John was going to hold him accountable for the way he was leading this church, especially for the serious crime of opposing the teaching of Christ's apostles. And so, out of love for the church And love for the truth, out of love for Diotrephes himself, John was determined to speak the truth and to come and to seek this man's repentance and hopefully his restoration. So far in the body of this letter, we've seen commendation of Gaius, the confrontation of Diotrephes, and now we come to the commendation of Demetrius, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 brings us to the central command, really, in this entire letter. Really, the only command. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This verse begins, again, with that familiar address we've seen several times in this letter. Beloved, dear friend. It then sets up a twofold contrast, which we are so familiar with in the writings of John. Part one is this do not imitate evil, but imitate good. To imitate is to copy, to mimic. As the child's proverb puts it, monkey see, monkey do. This command 
immediately follows the bad example of Diotrephes, an example not to be followed. And of course, we know that Christ is the perfect example to be followed. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, we're all called to look to Christ as our chief and perfect example to imitate. It often helps to have mature believers who are flesh and blood around us to show us what it looks like to live as disciples and imitators of Christ in our culture today. And that's why we need the body of Christ, the church. That's why, one reason why we cannot be solo Christians today. Diotrephes is the bad example. Gaius and Demetrius are two good examples that are set out in this letter. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And then we have part two of the contrast. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This contrast is very similar to the saying of our Lord. Matthew seven fifteen and 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. The outward fruits are a manifestation from the heart and show whether or not a person is from God or has not seen God. Of course, we know that the outward fruits are not always a perfect sign. Christians continue to struggle with sin, and there are unbelievers, even false teachers, who can look pretty good on the outside, at least for a time. But this is the rule of thumb, that the fruit of the Spirit will manifest, or the evil fruit of a hard heart will manifest one or the other. And John calls believers to look for the fruit and to bear the fruit of the Spirit dwelling within them. Imitate good, not evil. And we come to verse 12. I've been talking a lot about Demetrius, but here his name finally comes up. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Here's John's explicit commendation, recommendation of Demetrius to Gaius for hospitality. He's alluded to it in verses 5 through 8, but now he gives this formal testimony to Demetrius that he is a faithful worker for Jesus Christ. And notice that it is a threefold testimony in accordance with the Mosaic law. Demetrius has received a good testimony first from everyone. Maybe that's threefold in and of itself. First from everyone, second from the truth itself, and third we, that is John and his church, add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. With this strong recommendation in hand, Gaius will have to decide where his loyalty lies. Is he loyal to the apostle or to Diotrephes? If he is loyal to the apostles of Jesus Christ, then surely he will do what is good and right and show hospitality to Demetrius. Finally, we come to the closing farewell, verses 13 through 15. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. My friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. 
Verses 13 and 14 are almost identical to 2 John 1.12, which I commented on last time. John writes briefly with a hope to visit soon, see them face to face. Paper and ink were costly in those days, and this whole letter would have fit on just one sheet of paper. And the final verse begins with this blessing of peace. Peace be to you. Peace in the midst of strife and division in the church. Peace is what this church needed. Peace is what John seeks for it. At the same time, John realizes that peace can only be achieved if Diotrephes is confronted and dealt with. Peace will only be achieved if Diotrephes either repents and is restored or if he refuses to repent and is put outside the church. Either way, peace will be costly. The prayer is for peace. And we have the final greetings. John does not list names as Paul often does at the close of his letters. We're reminded of the many close relationships shared between these two churches when he asked them to greet one another, each by name. As we come to the end of this letter, we're also bringing the series on John's three letters to a close. And I'll admit it's a bit unsettling to end here. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. What will Gaius do? Will John make it to visit this church? How will Diotrephes respond? We don't have answers to these historical questions. I still hold to what I said last time. The fact that these letters were preserved for us as Holy Scripture for me points in the direction of a happy ending, at least for the church as a whole. I believe that the church was restored to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. The question for you tonight is what lessons will you take away from this letter? How can you grow in showing true biblical hospitality? That is hospitality that furthers the mission of the church, that builds up other believers. And as you show hospitality to other believers, you will also deepen relationships with other mature believers, giving you examples to follow so that you might better imitate what is good and not what is evil. And of course, you can support those who preach the pure gospel not only through hospitality, but also through offerings to the church as well. John has also given us a brief but powerful lesson in this letter about confronting sin by speaking the truth in love. Even though he is in a city some distance away, He does not allow sin to fester, especially when it is leading others astray. Is there a similar situation in your life and your relationships that you need to deal with before it grows worse? Each time we come to the Lord's table, as we do tonight, it is a reminder that we must be reconciled in all our relationships, that we should come to the Lord with a clean conscience. Many lessons to take away. And is it not amazing how much this brief letter, less than 200 words, has to teach us? And so we praise the Lord, the gift of his holy, infallible word. Shall we pray?
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how much you have to teach us. And we see how you work through your word and through your people and through your church. We see how even in the early church, there were already problems. And yet how you worked by your word and by your spirit for repentance, for restoration. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to work in us today uh, through the powerful word and spirit, the preaching and teaching of your gospel, that you would continue to grow us in truth and in love, grow us to be like Christ our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.